Hello and welcome to another podcast of Father and Joe. I'm Joe Rocky here with Father Boniface Hicks. And now we're going to dive back into our food, clothing, and shelter and work conversation that we've been having for the last month or so. So in our last conversation, we discussed what poor is from the gospel perspective. And today we're going to turn it back into from the American perspective, for right or wrong, because that's how the secular world uses the conversations about poor. And we were talking about how people who go to work economically make more than those who don't because they're contributing something to a company. And furthermore, people who have skills that are in high demand Maybe the industries just in more demand than another industry. They're just better than someone at something. But regardless, those people tend to have better overall conditions. And in last conversation, we had discussion about how those conditions are going to be different priorities to different people. Some people, the gross number on the paycheck is the most important condition. For some people, it's the working environment, the commute. I've even had people based upon the building that they were going to work in. It was a cool-looking place. They just wanted to be there. Um, obviously, your management. You know, We've discussed multiple times throughout the series how people will be attracted to be with a good manager. And so there's a lot of different variables that go into this. And we had the last cast kind of defining what poor is but we wanted to continue the conversation today about essentially the economic poor in america particularly because if you look at the poorest person in america they're doing pretty well compared to a lot of places in the world so we've also been doing a really good job of focusing on the majority so when we go through this, there might be a person who comes to your mind that's not exactly this, that, or the other. Um, but this is kind of an in-general conversation, which take it for what it is. But that being said, it, it's pretty factual. So, Father, in, in my findings, both as an employer and as someone who goes through Many houses, you know, like I said, I, I've seen the entire gamut from people who have to pay me to have it to seven figure checks. I also drive around quite a bit. So in that contents, I've seen how people live. Now, granted, it's, it's for a snapshot. It's about a 30 minute window at a time, but I've seen a lot more households and, and people than most people just the way that it is over the last eight years. So, and you're seeing them from a different perspective. You're seeing them coming to you in confession and in conversations about that. And I have essentially seen that there's, when we're talking about the economically poor, there's basically two paths that people go to, to become economically poor. Category one, they became addicted to something that is detrimental to their physical health and mental well-being. And therefore, they 
have eroded their skills, desire, whatever, to become functional in the workplace. You know, if you're high all the time, you're not going to be able to communicate and do your job. So that's category one, where they've become addicted to something, which is obviously its own categorical problem in itself. But that's cause one. And cause two goes directly back to the Jesus teaching of what poor is, but applied to an economic sense, is that they have become accustomed and satisfied with a certain state and they're okay with it and don't want to push out of it. So kind of a mental barrier that they're just okay with it. So why push out? So those are the two main pipelines that I see um, in America about how ultimately people end up being poor. Now, like I said, that doesn't count the the guy who had a job and the company went bankrupt or whatever, because the majority of those people end up finding a different type of employment because they had skills to be employed. I'm talking about those that essentially are not participating in the workforce environment. And that also doesn't count people who are retired because if you're retired, uh, retirement essentially is the benefit for working a lifetime and being able to spend more time with your family. So that's the starting point of where I found it. And I want to stop there to see if there's any objections before we even dive in. Um, well, I love, uh, I love the way that you're thinking about these things. And I guess I would like to just highlight that for the sake of our listeners. I mean, you've really been thinking about these things, you know, and, and uh, when you encounter these different situations, you're trying to understand how, how do people get here? What's going on here? What does this mean? What's, what does this mean for our society? What does this mean about the human person? How does this inter, intersect with, with the gospel? And I just want to really commend you for that, Joe, and, and hold you up as an example. I know that's not what you're looking for in uh, setting out with this, but, but it really, I, I just really appreciate that. I think one of the ways that um, you are poor in the good sense and blessed because of it is that you have a drive to understand why things are the way they are and, and what's going on and how we can do better, not just individually, how I can do better in my own life, but how we can do better as a society, as a church. And that hunger and thirst for justice that you have, that sense of uh, kind of poverty of spirit that we're on the way, that we're a work in progress, really drives you in, in a great way. And so, um, yeah, I just want to hold that up for our listeners. And you pointed out that one of the reasons that people stay materially poor is because they have become, and this sounds really strange, you know, but is because they have become rich or they have become satisfied. Woe to you who are satisfied, Jesus says, for you will hunger. You know, when we get to the end of our lives and we've become prematurely satisfied, and that can even be with a very low economic situation. You know, that can be with a real, even a very low level of happiness, we might say. It's not that uh, people with low economic situations, you know, shouldn't be happy or even holy. There's uh, one of my favorite saints is St. Benedict Joseph Labre, who lived as a beggar in Rome. <laughs> so there's nothing uh, preventing 
being very holy and having a very low economic situation. He wasn't trying to get himself out of that situation, uh, but he was trying to grow in holiness, which is uh, something tangential to that. But anyway, yeah, are there people who become satisfied with their uh, with a bad state in life? Let me just describe it that way so that we don't keep overloading these words. Um, are there people that become satisfied with a bad state in life? And then getting into that situation, there's something that kind of locks them into that situation, um, like drugs or addiction, as you said. Uh, and I would see those two things being kind of related, actually, you know, that that low, uh, that bad situation, you know, actually leads to drugs because, in fact, they're not satisfied. Their hearts are still longing for something, but for whatever reason, uh, they, they're not striving for it. And so they sort of settle for the immediate high. And then that kind of creates its own bad feedback loop and plunges deeper and deeper into that poverty. So, uh, yeah, those are, uh, yeah, anyway, we're, I think we're off to a good start. So let me, I'll, I'll let you continue from there. Yeah, fair enough. And that's one of the things that, yeah, what caused first? The the fact that they're feeling content and down that caused them to go and get high or they're feeling content and down in the withdrawal after being from high and how it just continues that, that circle. And that's pretty self-explicit. So they've done these studies with children, not to go on to a long tangent, where you can have – a couple of NMM is sitting in front of you, bowl A, and they're told if you don't eat these M&Ms for two minutes, we'll come out and we'll give you two more bowls of the same size. But you have to sit in the room by yourself for two minutes. And long story short, some of the kids will sit and wait it out and eat way more M&Ms and some will just go right into it. So to me that says, and also from observations of the real world that there's just always going to be a group of people who just want what they can get right now and they don't want to put in the discipline in this case to get the other two bowls of m&ms so coming at this from two perspectives obviously there's the economic perspective of work um, and then there's also the the spiritual side how do we address that that fact because from the work perspective the way that our political system has been set up is that you can get essentially free room and board through subsidized housing you can get free food through multiple different welfare programs you can definitely get clothing um and that covers – but there's no work element. There, there's just not. And that covers the, the four things we've been talking about here. And the way that our system has been set up is it will provide it to you virtually with no questions asked. doesn't do anything about the addiction side. That, like I said, that's a category that we, we can't address right now. But as far as the person who's satisfied with their station – they're getting three of the four essentials. What do we do about that situation? 
Because there's one answer that says, well, just stop paying them. They'll have to participate in work, and then therefore they will take care of the other three. And then there's another segment that doesn't believe that people are capable of taking care of themselves. Or else if they were, they wouldn't be in this situation in the first place of being content. So I don't think it's that black and white, but I wanted to say that that's essentially when you look at the two-party system of America, the answers that they give. One says, turn it all off, and the other one says, if you turn it all off, they won't be able to live with themselves, and then we'll just have mass hysteria problems. So that's where the American political side is going with it, and before we dive into all of the other ways of distributing it, um, you know, pure capitalism and, and pure communism. I wanted to start with where we are today in current America. Well, and, and what comes to me, first of all, Joe, and I have to give all those caveats like I have before, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not claiming that I've uh, thoroughly thought through all of these things, but what's coming to me is both scenarios that you presented for a person who, uh, you know, how did, how did that person get to that point? They, they went to high school, they dropped out of high school. What kind of environment did they grow up in? And how do you get to a point that you have no ambition, that you don't want anything better for yourself, that you don't want to make a gift of yourself? How do you get to that point? And uh, whether you provide for that person in a continual way, or whether you don't provide for that person in a continual way, you continue to deprive that person of what they really need to grow, which is love. Love is what makes people grow. And probably somebody who's in that situation has not been loved to get into that situation. And the kind of uh, the attitude on one side is, well, make them suffer. And then, you know, just for the prevention of further suffering, they'll figure out a way out. Well, and, you know, maybe there's a, there's a point to that. And, but it's kind of harsh. Uh, and, and there, you know, certainly love doesn't simp- just prevent people from suffering. I mean, suffering is a part of life and it is a motivator. There's no question about it. But just to throw people out on the streets and say, you know, just suffer it out. Um, well, that's probably complicating the very problem that got them into that place to begin with, which was, the pain of abandonment and rejection, which leads them to think they have no dignity and thus they have nothing to work for. You know, I mean, it's like it's just complicating that, that lack of love. On the other hand, just to provide for them, you know, in the worst cases, just to sort of throw money at them and say, well, here's, here's everything you need. And to do that with a certain uh, clinical coldness or a legal responsibility you know, to have the handout person at the welfare counter just hand them their check and treat them like a dog that's that you're, you know, providing food for. Well, that doesn't help people either. You know, uh, that doesn't help people feel that they have the dignity to grow out of that. That can easily just lock them into the same system. So um, I, I think it's inhumane. I think it's cruel just to throw people out on the street. But there's certainly something lacking in a radical way if all we're doing is providing for people's needs, but not actually providing love. 
And, and then we are just sort of reinforcing, putting them in a situation where they're going to stay in that situation and they're going to continue to have those same needs. And, um, and, and so anyway, that's a, a first swipe at uh, the, you know, a kind of Christian view of a, a political duality that's missing something. And I think you actually hit upon the underlying truth that is rarely talked about is that the dollars and cents element is a secondary issue. It's the one that's primarily focused upon because you can put numbers to it. And if there's numbers, there can be a politician saying one way or the other, more or less. Um, But as an underlying fact, this is one of those things that no government political system or economic system could ever address. How do you make parents who care? How can you make anyone who cares? And that is you know, part of the draw of what we're trying to do with this cast is, as you've said many times, you grow love by being loving um, and easier to receive love, doing both single-handedly. And it makes me think, as you were talking about here, about an example you gave a while ago. can't remember from exactly which episode it was. But it was a man who was sitting in front of a statue of Mary. And he was talking about how younger in his life, he was so mean to everyone and full of hate and anger. And eventually the sisters um, at the convent just kept working with him and working with him, working with him. And later in life, he found the mercy and peace and his life turned around. So where... I'm essentially looking at this and go, so if that's the solution, you know, where you need to create more love, how do we do that? And that might be part of this bigger issue of how do we grow the faith, just get more people coming to the Eucharist to do it. That might be part of it. But I got to imagine it starts with a family. Um, having a loving family and go there before you do anything else, um, before you even leave the house, you got to start with, with, with having a loving house. So obviously that's something we have, we've touched upon many times in this series and this podcast um, overall. And I think that it's getting back to that core issue because it's exactly, as you said, there's not an ambition to move forward and when you see people who don't have ambition, it's typically some some form of why should I bother? You know, the, there's the fetus attitude. And that type of attitude comes from a belief that nothing will work. And the underlying thought behind it is being I'm not going to get love out of it anyway. I'm not going to get what I really need. And I also like how you showed there that really both – answers from both parties are neither correct but also when you're looking at this from the governmental distribution point you can't make people love each other so what else could they do i get why they rested on this byproduct effectively trying to solve a symptom but not the cause which is a problem within its own right so i wanted before i go too far down the path i wanted to give you a chance to to respond there Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you can think back to the 
way we provide food, clothing, and shelter with no expectation of work and without thinking twice about it when we have an infant. We do that all the time. You know, we never, of, of course, we're going to feed, clothe, and shelter an infant. And, and what's the difference between that infant and the grown-up person that we we're also providing food, clothing, and shelter to? Uh, the, the difference is not so much in the individual that's the recipient. The, the difference is in the way that it's done. We not only feed, clothe, and shelter infants, we love them. And as we love them, they grow. And as they grow, they discover themselves and they want to become a gift. They want to give themselves. They, they want to grow and explore and and encounter life and they want to live so again love is is the difference you know so we we follow the same pattern <laughs> uh, food clothing and shelter for those who need it but then also the love that makes people want to work as well as uh, certainly the opportunity to do something and good parents as their children grow provide work for them to do they provide ways for them to make a gift of themselves, to discover that they are something unique and beautiful and unrepeatable. And they find ways to give you know, children that chance to express themselves. And, and so it makes sense that we would do that with adults who are in a similar situation of need. As you say, you can't force somebody to love. Uh, and, and that's very true. So you could look at the reverse side I'm in a situation in various cases where I do love people, but I don't have the money to provide for them some basic necessities. And that's where I work together with some of those government agencies where I can say, you know, I can't put food on your table, but I can believe in you and I can encourage you and you can keep talking to me and, and we'll work on that love side. And then I'm grateful that the government is there and they can work on some of the basic necessities side of things. In the case that you mentioned with that man who was standing before the image of Our Lady, that was at a, a, a homeless shelter and an AIDS hospice that was run by the Missionaries of Charity. And I don't know, I think they probably also take some government funding. But in any event, they, uh, they kind of do both sides of things. They provide food, clothing, and shelter at the same time that they provide love and, and help to develop the, uh, the individuals that they take in. So, and, and I remember, um, now I don't, again, I'm walking into dangerous territory because I don't know the details of it and how it all played out, but the, the idea at least that President Bush had come up with a number of years ago, the faith-based initiatives, that the government, instead of providing things directly, would fund faith-based organizations that would be able to provide the necessities with the love that's behind it. And they would do that out of the motivation of their faith, that as Christians, we love people because God has loved us first, and we consider that to be an important thing to do for others. But we don't always have the, the means to do it or to provide for some of those basic necessities. And so the government, instead of providing it directly, would funnel that through faith-based programs. And I thought that was a pretty good idea. Again, I don't know how the details worked out. All those things are subject to bad management and corruption. And uh, I, so I, I can't say that. But, um, you know, I think that's a, that's a nice uh, uh, 
solution. Now, the, the Republican side of things would say that when we take away from people the opportunity to give by extracting it from them through taxes, that we actually end up with less money in the system than if we don't extract it through taxes and have government-based programs, but rather we allow people to donate directly to the missionaries of charity. They'll be more generous in donating in that way, and then we can give them tax write-offs. So anyway, there are efforts in the government, you know, in politics to, to address these kinds of uh, deficiencies. But yeah, it's, uh, it's challenging. How do, you, how do you do that in the best way? Uh, fair enough. And as we're coming to the conclusion of the cast, um, first off, what you just said is X's and O's economically correct. And it's been tested many different times, many different places on this planet. It is economically a truth. Um, whether people want to believe it or not, it's how the facts bear out. Uh, but nonetheless, um, we do thank everyone here for listening here today. We will be with you again next week, continuing this conversation about food, clothing, shelter, and work. And then our series coming up down the road will be the Beatitudes as that will be coming up. So we thank everyone for listening. Please continue telling a friend and spreading the word about the cast. And we'll be with you next week.